0: Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us here where we talk about Christian faith and where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I sometimes break that down and like to think about that. And the more I think about it, the more it helps me. I hope it helps you. I don't do these kinds of things for my own benefit. I do them for all of us to think better about our Christian faith and about how we respond and relate to God. And, and what helps me is to realize that I need to have absolute confidence. That's unshakable confidence. I sometimes think when I think about absolute confidence, I remember science class when we talked about absolute zero. Now, don't ask me to tell you all about absolute zero. I don't remember all about it. I just remember that there was such a thing, is such a thing. I suppose it still is. But it reminds me that there are some absolutes in life. And one of the things that I want to have is absolute confidence. Absolute confidence. Unshaking, unwavering, undiminished, stands up when challenged, all of those kind of things. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. In other words, can I really trust Him? Is God trustworthy? Does He keep His Word? Does he respond to us in the way he says he will? Does he keep his promises? All of those kinds of things. And I want to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God so that I don't have to wonder about things. I can walk assured about what God says and what God will do and who God is. So this is our journey. Our journey is to challenge each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God And I was thinking about that this week And about a lot of other things And I, I did a little exploring in church history Very little I, I like church history I'm not really an expert in church history But I did a little exploring And I was thinking about Maybe we should touch on that from time to time And I discovered that this past week We celebrated an anniversary of sorts In church history It was on January 28th 1521, I believe it was. I'm checking my note here. January twenty eighth, 1521, that Martin Luther stood before this trial in Germany. He had been challenged by the church, by the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, about some of the things he was teaching. And in a very broad general description of that, he was teaching that we needed to trust the authority of the Bible. If the Bible said it, we could trust it, and we needed to follow what the Bible said, not other things that other people might have either made up or interpretations that didn't stand up to scrutiny of the Bible, that kind of thing, in a general sense. It's part of what's going on today. This battle and struggle that goes on in some some churches today is really over the authority of the Bible. And people struggle today sometimes, they don't want to let the Bible be the authority. But anyway, Martin Luther was challenged, he had been teaching what he believed the Bible said for a number of years, and the authorities in the church didn't like that because, well, frankly, it was undermining their authority and and some of the things they said. And so they challenged him, and they called him to account, and he had to appear at this church trial, I guess for all intents and purposes, and they would evaluate whether what he was teaching stood up to their scrutiny and whether they would approve it or whether they would not. And it's no small thing to say that he was really at risk of his life, because they were very heavy-handed in those days, and they would go after you big time if you did not buckle under to their authority and do what they said. Well, he traveled to the meeting was at a place in Germany called Worms. My German pronunciation is probably terrible, but it's not Worms. A lot of times people see it written W-O-R-M-S and think it's Worms. It's not. The German pronunciation is different. But he traveled there, and he stood before all the councils that involved government authorities and all that kind of stuff. It's a big deal. And he stood before them to make his defense. And he's widely quoted and remembered as saying... Quote, unless I am convicted of error by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word, I cannot and will not recant of anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. End of quote. And the most popular or most commonly known part of that is where he says here I stand I can do no other and so Martin Luther stood there in front of those authorities who could take his life and he said no I have to remain faithful to the word of God it's important for us to remember things like this and the fact that we just passed January 28th is a good reminder for all of us that the word of God remains our authority and we cannot must not compromise that. We have to stay true to that, uh, come what may. And thankfully, we don't live in a time when, when that kind of pressure is put on us, like Martin Luther faced. But we do face some challenges because people don't like to hear what the Bible says. They don't like the Bible's definition of right and wrong sometimes. And so they just want to say that, We have to follow what they say, not what God says. And Martin Luther gave us a great example that we need to stand up for that which is right and true and holy and not back down. So as you think about your absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, remember Martin Luther. He didn't say that in those words, but he trusted God enough to stand up and to stand strong and to remain faithful to what God had taught him and what he had been teaching because he believed he was teaching what the Bible said, and he was standing up for the authority of the Word of God. We always have challenges of interpretation. Uh, We've talked about that a little bit other times, so let's not take that lightly. There are always going to be challenges of interpretation, and people are going to interpret things a little differently. But on the main essence of Christian faith, Christians don't disagree. And so we need to come together on what we agree and hold tight to the authority of the Bible and then have honest conversations where we disagree in interpretation and always bring our interpretations back to being based upon the text of the Bible. What do we know God is saying? And not try to make it say what we want it to say, but hear what God actually says. That's how we develop faith. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God because we learn that God can be trusted because he has told us about himself in the Bible and we can rely on that. Well, that's one thing I've been thinking about this week. I've thought about some other things as well and you probably heard me say from time to time and I'm not really shy about saying it, I just don't know if I've said it here very much, is that we live in a time when the news media lies to us where they don't tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And, and some people get really, how should I say, get really alarmed by that. They don't quite know what to do with that, because they just don't want to believe that someone is intentionally lying to them. Well, I want to give you an example of that that you might not even think about as a lie, but it is because of what it omitted. Now, I don't know if you are a football fan or if you follow any of the football games, sports, either college or high school or, or the NFL, and it's not required for you to follow football. In fact, some people have had real trouble, particularly with the NFL, because of their attitude toward patriotism and other important issues of our day. And so some people have just walked away from, from watching the games or being a fan of any kind. And I think that's a respected position. I, myself, have some real struggles with some of the things that the NFL comes out and does. I don't agree with all that they do, but I also recognize there are some good people involved in that. There are some scoundrels. There are scoundrels everywhere, so let's not be overly uh, surprised by that, okay? But there are some good men involved in the NFL, and I want to point out one of those good men... I'm not here to be an apologist for this person. That's not my point. I'm simply giving you what has been widely reported and encourage you to think about this and to recognize this is an example of how the media lies to us. So there's a young quarterback. He was a rookie this past year. The NFL season has just finished. The Super Bowl is about to be played. This young man was a first-year player for the Houston Texans. His name is C.J. Stroud, and he's the quarterback. And by all accounts, he had a phenomenal year. No one going into the year expected him to play as well as he has. But he has played very well all year, led his team to the playoffs. They did not go real far in the playoffs. They lost uh, at one point, but they had quite a quite a game against the Cleveland Browns during what they call the wild card round. And his team won decisively. And it was really quite interesting to see and so after the game, the news media people, in this case NBC Sports, interviewed him and asked him about the, the game. And CJ always begins his comments, I've, I mean, heard, heard him more than once, but he always begins his comments in a similar fashion. And I don't know that he says it exactly this way every time, but he always gives credit to the Lord Jesus for his. For his uh, life. He always gives thanks and credit credits him in a straightforward way. He he will say things like uh, first and foremost, I want to give all glory and praise to my Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what he said on this interview after this wild card game. The interesting thing was that NBC Sports later posted a clip of that interview and they left out that part. The part where C.J. said, I want to give all glory and praise to my Lord Jesus Christ. Well, people got a little bit upset by that because that was a common thing. That was widely known that he always made that kind of statement, and here they left it out. And And he regularly makes statements that honor the Lord and points to, to God. Uh, he just doesn't hide that at all. Um for me, one time he said, for me, it's a lot of prayer, a lot of just knowing that God wouldn't put anything on me that I can't handle. Well, that that's pretty remarkable for him to say that. He also said, quote, I don't deserve his, referring to God, his grace and his mercy, but he still gives it to me, and I love him for that. I think God made me like that. I thank God for putting that in me, because that's something that you need playing in this position in this league, end of quote. So he's been very straightforward about his Christian faith, hadn't been hiding it at all, but he hasn't been obnoxious about it. He's just been honest about it and wants people to know that that's an important part of who he is and how his life has meaning and makes sense. Well, when NBC left that part out of his beginning statement after that game, when he talked to the reporter, that was a lie because it left out an important part of what C.J. Stroud wants to communicate. Now, we don't often know what is left out in media reports, but I think that's a simple and straightforward and important point for us to make sure we don't miss. And we need to recognize that if they'll do it over a football game, what else do they do it over? What else do they not tell us? And that's where you need to pay attention to other sources. And you've heard me mention before, and I want to mention it again, check out AmericaOutloud.news. See what you can find out there. You might discover some things that you had no idea. There are lots of things that go on that are reported in different ways. And we who are committed to the truth need to be willing to look for those other sources of information so that we can know the truth and act on the truth. So that's a simple way and a simple example of how the media lies to us. And we as Christians, our best gift to the world we live in these days is the truth, because there is so much misinformation, so many lies, so many narratives, as they say, to tell us a story they want us to believe, rather than telling us this whole story and letting us draw our own conclusions. So there's another young man I want to point out as well, C.J. Strauss, 21, just getting started. This young man's a little older, 24, and He also plays quarterback in the National Football League, and I don't know that his statements have been um, misrepresented. I just want to make sure we realize that in the midst of all of the stuff that we hear out there, that there are some good character people. And by all accounts, Brock Purdy is one of those people. Now, Brock Purdy is a quarterback. He's going to be a Super Bowl quarterback because his team, the San Francisco 49ers, advanced to the Super Bowl and be played shortly. Well, he didn't come out of college as a top prospect. In fact, during the NFL draft, he was the last person selected in the draft. The very last. They call him Mr. Irrelevant because of being the last person selected. But now here he is, starting quarterback for one of the best teams in football, the team that will represent the, the NFC in the Super Bowl game. So Brock Purdy is also a young man who is not shy about his Christian faith. He, uh, he's talked about his relationship with God. He's talked about how he didn't always keep God first and at one point elevated football over his relationship with God. And he recognized that was wrong, and he asked God's forgiveness. And here's what he said about that. Quote, it was just a great reminder of where my identity is, where it lies. And it's in Jesus. And I continue to lean on him. Again, the next day, I didn't go out and throw for 500 yards and was this awesome quarterback. But it was just this peace that I had with him, knowing that, hey, no matter what, I'm going to face, moving forward during college football, God and Jesus are going to be my identity. And whatever I face, I won't be shaken from it. I've got a great foundation in him. Another time he said, uh, or wrote on an Instagram post, The Lord is my rock and I will not be shaken. Well, why do I bring him up? Again, I'm not an apologist for Brock Purdy or any of these guys, but these are testimonies that they're giving that are out there. And we, as Christians, ought to be aware of some of what's going on so that we have a good comprehension of life beyond ourselves. And I found it very interesting that that Brock Purdy, and it was in the headline of this one article that I looked at, he, he straight up said, My identity is in Jesus. Now, he didn't say his identity is as a football player or as a quarterback or anything like that. Uh, He said his identity is in Jesus. It reminds me of the quarterback a few years ago who said that when he retired from the NFL, he was going to be a pastor. And when I heard him say that, I thought, well, that's well and good, but how about this? How about when I retire from being a pastor, I'll be a quarterback? Well, nobody thinks that's a very good idea or thinks that's going to happen. And I don't know if this young man is going to retire and become a pastor either. But that's what he said at the time. But anyway, back to Brock Purdy and this idea of identity. He doesn't put his identity in his success or failure as a quarterback. And I don't know how he's going to do in the Super Bowl. He might play well. He might not. Usually when I approach these games, I hope that everybody plays well. Uh, it's, it's kind of disappointing and, and it's a, on a level sad when mistakes determine the outcome of a game, maybe an interception, or a fumble, and there have been mistakes in games recently that have had a huge impact on the outcome of the game. I would much rather see a hard-fought game where everybody plays well, and the people who play the best win, but you can't control that. But here's the thing. Brock Purdy says, my identity is in Jesus. He doesn't say his identity is in football. He doesn't say it's in success as a football player. He says it's in Jesus. So here's what I want you to Ask yourself. Here's what I ask myself. Do I put my identity firmly, securely, in Christ? Is my identity, is your identity in something else? You know, here's the thing that that I would like to help you with if you struggle here. Some people have had, well, the experience that we've all had. And some people have had it more publicly and maybe more, uh, how should I say, decisively or maybe just say worse incidents in their lives where maybe they've done something they're really not proud of at all. In fact, maybe they're ashamed of it. And so I want to ask you, if you have taken all of that failure to the cross, and if the Lord of heaven and earth, if Jesus has forgiven you, then do you still find your identity in that failure or in that crisis or whatever it might be you see we who are followers of Jesus need to find our identity in him not in the things that we have done not in our own failures or our own successes all right it's not nothing wrong with you being a wonderful mom or a terrific dad that that's a good identity but ultimately our identity needs to be defined by the person and the work of a man named jesus and that supersedes all the unfortunate stuff that goes on in life that takes precedent over all of that so i just kind of want to encourage you not to be burdened by or intimidated by or hindered by all that stuff that you might feel has too much determined or identified you as a person. Give that all to Christ. You know, the the Bible says that, that Jesus didn't consider the shame of crucifixion. He thought about the joy that was before him and what it would accomplish. And what we need to do is we need to flip the script on this stuff in our lives and not go around continually being under the cloud of those mistakes we made. But we need to put that aside and say, yes, I made some mistakes, but now my identity is in Jesus, and I'm not going to be identified by the worst days of my life. Remember, Brock Purdy says, my identity is in Jesus. Win or lose, that's his identity, and that should be true for us as well. We are not perfect. We don't pretend to be perfect, but we are pursuing trusting the lord and our identity is in him so take a big breath and put aside all that stuff and don't let it define you let him define you are you the person he makes you to be that's what matters well i shift gears a little bit i've been all over the map it seems like a little bit today but i was thinking about some some other things that i i get a newsletter from a guy who who I like a lot and disagree with profoundly on some occasions. But, uh, sometimes I quote him, but he told a story in this newsletter I thought, well, this is a little bit of opportunity for us to think about some, an important subject a little bit differently. And, and I'm again, uh, it sounds like I'm, uh, how should I say, defending a lot of things today, and maybe I am. I don't think about it as defending as much as helping us orient our thinking better so that we have a proper perspective on things. But every now and then, people accuse Christians and churches of just being about the money. Well, there may be some that are that way, and I have seen some evidences of that in my life in church. Not on the local church level, but in other places and in other situations. But nonetheless, the Bible calls us to be generous, to take care of each other, to give to God, to put God first in our finances. We still, in our church, pass an offering basket, or we use a little offering bag rather than a basket. We pass that every Sunday and give give ourselves the opportunity to give. And quite frankly, people in our church would give, even if we didn't, if we forgot to pass the offering plate some Sunday, they would remind me, hey, what about the offering? Because they want to put God first in their finances. And so you might be amused by this story that kind of gives a little perspective on that and helps remind us that we need to be generous. And I got this story from this man's newsletter. And uh, he told the story. Apparently it's an old story, very old. Um, He didn't say that it was true. He just said it was an old story about the time the beggars went on strike in Jerusalem. Now, you know what a beggar is. Beggars are the people that stand on the street corner or sit in a certain place. And and there were beggars in Jesus' time. And, And they went on strike in Jerusalem because they thought that people were not being generous enough to them, that people just weren't giving to the beggars like they should. Now, okay, so you get the idea. It's a preposterous story. All right, but hang in there. So the beggars went on strike because they said, you people that are giving to us when we beg aren't being as generous as you should be. And so the beggars stopped begging. They didn't show up to their usual spot. They didn't ask people for a gift. They just stopped begging. They went on strike. Well, now that was a problem because all of those people there in Jerusalem were Jewish, and they knew that the Torah, the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, taught them that they needed to be generous they knew that in order to be faithful to the Torah, they needed to be generous, and the beggars had gone on strike, and they didn't know what to do. Here they wanted to be obedient to what God had said in the Torah, but they couldn't because the beggars had quit begging. So there was a standoff going on. The beggars said, you're not being generous enough. The people wanted to give because they knew they should, because the Torah said they should. And yet they couldn't do it because the beggars quit begging. So they they had negotiations. They got together. The people that were leading, the, the people that wanted to give, met with the beggars who were complaining they weren't giving enough. And they had a good outcome because they all agreed that the people that needed to give would start giving more, and the beggars agreed to accept it. Well, we live in an interesting time when it comes to giving help for people, And let me just give us a little perspective about that. Yes, we need to be generous with God. And we need to put God first when you go to your church. And I hope you are going to your church every week, not just regularly, every week. Unless, as the old timers used to say, providentially hindered. I hope when you go to your church that you are giving to God generously. Tithes and offerings. I hope that your church issued you a receipt for your giving for the last calendar year, 2023. And I hope when you look on it, that it represented a generous heart of giving to God. We put God first. Well, that makes a huge difference. And and I hope that your church receives your gifts in that same spirit, because As a church, we need to accept the gifts people give. We don't need to say to them, well, you should have given more, what's wrong with you? And we don't need to say to them, oh, wait a minute, are you sure you can give that? We need to trust people to give as God puts it on their heart. And isn't that what we all should do? Give in the way God puts it on our hearts. So don't be intimidated by your church asking you to give. Don't be intimidated by the offering basket or whatever method they use to give comes by. Don't be intimidated when they give a financial report and tell you where the church is financially. Take it as your responsibility to give generously to God, and your church should take it as their responsibility to use those gifts wisely and well. And I think that's very important. We don't just want to spend money because we have it. We need to use it wisely and well. And we who give trust God to provide for us. And the churches who receive trust God to provide for them. And it should just work in the same way the beggars and the givers came to agree that the giver should give more and the beggars should be happy with what they received. And they should accept it. Maybe in the same way we should be happy with what God entrusts to our care, and maybe, maybe He will give us more responsibility when it comes to money, if we manage it better. Just a thought that you might want to consider. Well, we've taken a a lot of uh, twists and turns today. We've gone from media lies, and I gave you that one simple idea about how they omitted. An important statement from an NFL quarterback named C.J. Stroud, and you can look that up if you doubt, doubt it. Check it out and see. We talked about church history. We talked about how Martin Luther stood up for the authority of the Bible and how important that is today. And I, I can't stress that enough, that we need to preserve the authority of the Bible and not let the Bible be undermined in any way. And don't let your pastor undermine it. Don't let people Pressure your pastor to undermine it. Stand resolutely for the authority and the truthfulness of the Bible. That really matters. Martin Luther kind of gave us a good example of that. And we talked about identity. And I want to circle back to that because I think a lot of us find our identity, and it's kind of a challenge because we don't, we don't, we don't really challenge each other in this very much. It's kind of a challenge to find our identity in Christ, not in something else. For men. It's a particular challenge. We find our identity in our work often. I get that. I understand that. But I want to suggest to us that no matter how your life has turned out, no matter what events you think define you, no matter what people might say about you, your identity is found as a follower of Jesus in Christ and in Christ alone. And make him your identity. Well, we got some more ground to cover and some more exploring to do from the scriptures. I hope you'll stay with us. I'm Pastor Rick, and I'll be right back. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our customers will tell you how our products have made a difference for them. From improving immune health and supporting gut health to reducing the appearance of wrinkles and even improving mind, mood, and energy. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, foreign protein cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Who's got time for a nasal invasion messing up your lifestyle? Crush those nasties before they become a problem. For a limited time, when you add the new RX throat spray to your order with the coupon code OUTLOUD, you'll receive 20% off the entire purchase. Go to americaoutloud.shop. That's americaoutloud.shop and use coupon code OUTLOUD. Use RX because it works. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe. Air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill. No drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. For 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud for 25% off. A suppression of truth in a world of darkness, void of any soul, requires that we are rightly informed, properly equipped, and strongly motivated to fight the corruption. AmericaOutLoud.news is that place to awaken your heart, soul, and mind to the out loud truth. Now is our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we challenge each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. That's how we define faith as we talk about it here. We challenge each other to stretch in God's direction. We challenge each other to actually go to church every week. We challenge each other to actually believe in the authority of the Bible and to not let it be diminished. I mean, we challenge each other a lot here, don't we? Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to stretch toward God's challenge, or are you going to shrink from God's challenge? You see, we live in a world that people want to shrink from all the challenges, but not us. We are going to stretch in God's direction, and we are going to trust Him. Absolutely trust Him, because we have confidence that He is worthy of our trust. So let's explore some passages from the bible. I want to look at two of them in the next few minutes and help us kind of come to grips with who is Jesus. We this is a time in the church year when we tell the story of Jesus and part of what we do is we recognize that in telling the story of Jesus, God is revealing himself to us. A few weeks ago we celebrated Epiphany and we started this time during the story of Jesus of of explaining how Jesus reveals himself to us, how God reveals himself to us in the person of Jesus. And so we're going to take a look at a couple of Bible passages that help us understand what God is saying to us and how he's revealing himself to us. Now, I want to call your attention to a very familiar couple of verses in the Bible. They may not be as familiar in the translation I'm going to read, but you'll recognize them, I think, if you've heard them. They come from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 30 and 31. And I'm going to read them from the New English Translation. I like to use different English translations. It helps me not get stuck, but it helps me think about the Bible through fresh eyes so that I really do take the time and and ga- gather exactly what the Bible is saying as best as I can. So verse 30 of chapter 40 of Isaiah, and then following 31, they go together. Even youths get tired and weary, even strong young men clumsily stumble. But those who wait for the Lord's help find renewed strength, they rise up as if they had eagles' wings, they run without growing weary, they walk without getting tired. So we want to end up with those verses, but I want to start back a little earlier in that chapter, just so we begin to get the idea. And remember, as I read these, Keep in mind, what we're trying to, to learn is how God is revealing himself to us so that we will understand him, so we will have confidence in him. So we're going to start back at verse 21. And again, I'm reading from the New English Translation, and we will end up, because it concludes with those verses I just read, those sometimes familiar verses to us. If they're not familiar with you, to you right now, they probably will be by the time we finish. So starting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you since the very beginning? Have you not understood from the time the earth's foundations were made? He is the one who sits on the earth's horizon. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before him. He is the one who stretches out the sky like a thin curtain and spreads it out like a pitched tent." He is the one who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the earth's leaders insignificant. Indeed, they are barely planted. Yes, they are barely sown. Yes, they barely take root in the earth, and then he blows on them, causing them to dry up, and the wind carries them away like straw. To whom can you compare me? Whom do I resemble, says the Holy One? Look up at the sky. Who created all these heavenly lights? he is the one who leads out their ranks he calls them all by name because of his absolute power and awesome strength not one of them is missing why do you say jacob why do you say israel the lord is not aware of what is happening to me my god is not concerned with my vindication do you not know have you not heard The Lord is an eternal God, the creator of the whole earth. He does not get tired or weary. There is no limit to his wisdom. He gives strength to those who are tired. To the ones who lack power, he gives renewed energy. Even youths get tired and weary. Even strong young men clumsily stumble. But those who wait for the Lord's help find renewed strength. They rise up as if they had eagle's wings. They run without growing weary. They walk without getting tired. So here we have a revelation of God from the prophet Isaiah. And we need to think about that in that passage in those terms or from that perspective today so that we can get a grasp of, of this God that we have absolute confidence in, who is trustworthy and who we trust. So there are a number of rhetorical questions in here. You've probably heard them. Have you not heard? Do you not hear? Starts out in verse 21. Rhetorical questions as though, of course you have. Of course you've heard this. Of course you know this. Haven't you heard this from the beginning? Well, of course you've heard it from the beginning. And the point that the writer is making here, and this sounds very much like a psalm if you get right down to it. And when you look at it on the page, it could look like the way psalms are laid out because that's the way the language works. But what he's really saying here with these rhetorical questions that he, that come up from time to time through the passage is that, by the way, God is not like you. God is completely different from you. And he cites some specific things about that, about how God sits above everything and looks down and and the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers before him, about how he stretches out the sky and it's just like a tent roof to him. It's nothing as small compared to him. Uh, he talks about how insignificant the great rulers of the earth are. You know, these great rulers, they think they're hot stuff. Happens today. It happened in Jesus' day. And and here Isaiah is saying, ah, they're not so hot stuff. And what, what's he saying? They're, they're barely planted, barely sown. They barely take root. God blows on, on them and causes them to dry up, and the wind carries them away. So, so God blows on these great people, and they dry up and blow away. puts that as simply as that. What, what he's trying to remind us of is that, that God is not like us. God is very different from us. God is, and it sounds simple, we say it a lot, but let's make sure we don't miss it. In other words, he's saying, God is great. He's saying God is greater than whatever you think of as great. God is far superior to even the greatest person you could imagine. We need to re- rekindle that sense in our lives. We sometimes forget that God is great, and we can trust him. And nothing that looks like a big deal to us here on earth is a big deal to God. God rises above all of that. There's another little statement that, that the writer makes about God in verse 25. It says, He's the Holy One. Now, that's pretty important for us to think about because that describes God and the way He is. God is holy, and He challenges us to be holy. And we need to understand that God is not only just great, but He is holy. There is no flaw, blemish. Nothing diminishes Him. There's no sin. Everything He does is right. Everything He calls for having done is right, and we can have confidence that this is a God who is holy. Now, the third thing that we probably ought to notice here before we go along is that everything depends on God. Now, the the big the writers, the academics, they use the word contingent. Everything is contingent on God. And, and that's a good word. It's a proper word. We might better understand it if we think about everything depends on God. And that's the point that he makes in those early statements, in those early verses, that that God is so utterly other than we are, and he doesn't work on our timetable. He has no limitations, but we can depend on him because he is actively involved in our world, and he knows what's going on, and nothing gets by him. You know, the the writer says, starting about verse 27, in so many words, he says, what, you think God is aloof, that God doesn't know what's going on? You think God has forgotten what's going on in your world and what's happening to you? Well, of course he hasn't. This is the creator of God that we're talking about here. He's not weak, he's not weary, and he understands everything. You know, as you talk to God, you might be inclined to say, God, but you don't understand, let me explain this to you. Well, let me assure you, God understands, he tells us that here. And maybe you would pray better by saying to God, I know you understand, and I thank you for understanding, and I thank you for helping me Show me what I'm missing. Lead me through this. Give me grace to understand better, to know what to do rightly. Instead of whining and complaining to God about how hard we have it, maybe we ought to affirm that he knows. Now, I get it. You can read the Psalms and use the Psalms for your, how should I say, complaints to God that's in the Bible, It's not that God doesn't understand those, but what if we, instead of just saying to God, here's what's going on, we also said to God, and I know you know, and I know you understand, and I know it's not beyond you to help. So God tells us in this passage, and the writer makes it plain to us, that that God is the one who is undiminished. He has more energy than we can ever imagine. He never gets worn out and tired. And And he's not dependent upon anybody else. He's self-existent unto himself. He doesn't lack for anything. He helps those who need help. And these are all the characteristics of God at all times. That's what the Bible is saying here. And he makes a very interesting contrast here toward the end. All of these great things, God says, are small to him, and that he does have everything we need, and he understands our situation. And then in verse 30 these two verses that we so often cite, they're, they're, they're so very well done. He talks about how even youths get tired and weary, and even strong young men clumsily stumble. So it's acknowledging. Yeah, when you're young, you have a vigor that's different than when you get older. All of us who have gotten a little bit older understand that. The young don't really grasp that usually, but they see it played out before them. I didn't grasp it when I was younger. I saw it, but it didn't really resonate with me. It didn't register in the way it should have. But here God is saying that even the most vigorous people that you know get tired, get weary, but God doesn't. This is a significant contrast he's making here, that God has the kind of vitality that even when we get worn down physically, He is not worn down, and we can trust Him. And he makes that statement in verse 31, that those who wait for the Lord's help find renewed strength. Now, a word about wait. I don't like to wait. Never have liked to wait. Can't ever remember liking to wait. It's not that I think that I shouldn't have to wait. That's not it at all. It's just I would prefer to do something else other than just wait. So... When it comes to waiting in line for something, I don't mind waiting my turn, but I don't want to stand in line and wait. I want to go do something else, and I'll come back when the line's finished. Well, and that's happened a few times that I've done that, and, and usually I think of that as a cafeteria line or some kind of serving line, and I come back later, and some of the food's gone. Well, too bad, so sad. I don't worry about that. I still preferred to do whatever I was doing rather than wait in line. Now, some people are very content to wait in line. Uh, God bless you. I'm glad you are. I'm just not. I don't like to wait in traffic. It's not that I want to go speeding away and and uh, outrun everybody. I just prefer not to be waiting in traffic. I'd rather drive at three in the morning when there's less traffic than get caught up in waiting in traffic. And some people think that's nuts, and that's okay, but. That waiting is not what is going on here. Not not even close. And the waiting that's going on here is not what far too many church people have talked about. And I don't want to be overly difficult here, but I want to be plain. Been around churches a long time and I've heard a lot of people say when a, an opportunity comes up or an idea surfaces that we ought to do this as a church, people will often hyper-spiritualize that, and yes, I mean, hyper-spiritualize that, and they say, well, we better wait on God's timing. And, and you know, that has always kind of irked me, because I'm thinking, well, what's God waiting for? You know, God's timing, and, and I understand I've been around long enough to know that, that timing is significant. I'm not oblivious to that. But what I've noticed is that this idea of waiting on God's timing, as church people put it, It's not about waiting on God's timing. It's an excuse to do nothing. Maybe they're afraid, maybe they're reluctant, maybe they don't want to have to put out the energy to do that. I don't know. But I do know that so many times people have hyper-spiritualized that and it becomes an excuse. But they never say, Well, how will we know when God's time has shown up? They never want to identify that. You know, so I might ask you and I might ask them well, when are we finished waiting? How will we know? See, what we need to understand is that the idea here where it says, wait for the Lord, does not mean wait and do nothing. It's a totally different sense in the original language, and it's a point that we need to make sure we understand. That God has just finished in this passage talking about how he has all the resources we need, how he rises above all the powers that we see around us, that he is, he is utterly greater than anything we can imagine. And so when we wait, we need to understand that concept from the original text as it was meant here. It wasn't meant sit and do nothing. It has other ideas in mind. One idea that it has is that we have complete dependence on God and allow him a willingness to operate on his terms. So there's two things. We have complete dependence on God and a willingness to allow God to operate things on his terms. Not wait until we're ready, but operate as though God is exactly who we trust in, and we're going to proceed in his might and in his strength, and we're going to accomplish what he wants us to do. It's not about our helplessness, it's about our dependence on him acting and our going forward based upon that, our renewed strength because we have this confidence in God. Now, there are some English translations, very few, that use a word different than wait. For example, one of them uses the word hope, that we hope for the Lord or hope in God, and we renew our strength. Others talk about trusting in God, and that's exactly what I would like us to, re- to remember, is that, God is showing us here how great he is, and then saying to us, don't hold back, have confidence in me, and let's go forward together. Can we get ahead of what God might want to do? Yeah, we can. Can we get behind? Oh, we do all the time, because we don't stop and think, what do we know that would please God? So let's do what would please God and get started. So along that line, let me ask you, about your own personal spiritual well-being and i've challenged us a little bit started and i want you to think about it again how would you put into practice this idea of dependence upon god because he's the one that that we need if we're going to accomplish anything we have to have this kind of hope in god that he's going to act and we admit that that we need to operate on his timetable and on his terms especially his terms this timetable probably depends, and, and I don't know if I can prove this, but um, we're thinking about out loud here a little bit, aren't we? This timetable probably depends on his terms more than we think about time. So we need to operate on his terms. And if we will do what we know to do, then his timing might be more obvious to us and we might find ourselves less reluctant. So how do we act on this idea of having this confidence in God that is represented here, by the word hope or trust or commonly wait? Well, I asked you if you'd think about a project of spending a little time in the Bible four times in a week, where you take a Bible passage, you can choose which one, you can choose how long it is, but take intentional, focused time to hear what God says, to respond to it, and to Live your life based upon what you and God have talked about in those moments. See, we receive what God says, we, we think about it and how it applies to us, and then we act on what God is showing us. Isn't that consistent with the idea of having hope in God, having trust in God, much more than waiting for God? If we think wait means just wait, then we won't do anything. You won't embrace reading the Bible. You'll just do nothing and say, well, it's up to God. If God wants it to happen, he'll make it happen. How many times I've heard that. And there's some truth to that, but there's also some fear in that. Some, I don't want to do it in that. So let's challenge ourselves. Let's put this verse into practice by by finding new strength. And you, you'll probably be amazed at what happens as you spend some time in the Bible, because... What it talks about here is renewed strength, and it talks about our ability to rise as if on eagles' wings. Now, the sense there is a very specific sense of the way an eagle can soar on the wind, and it appears effortless. You know, if you've ever seen an eagle, and there are some eagles around here where I live, I don't notice them nearly as much as some of my friends, but they they see them, and, and I've seen them, and, and these birds, these eagles, they just soar. They're not flapping their wings wildly. They're just soaring. And they just navigate, you might say, surf on the wind. It's just remarkable. They don't get tired about that because they're just riding the wind. And so the sense in this passage is that that like an eagle, we can ride the wind of what God is doing. And we can have confidence in what he's doing in our lives, and we can renew our strength because of that. And we can rise on eagles' wings, and we can soar. And I want to suggest to you that soaring is not about working real hard at it. It's about the grace that God gives us when we do things like spend focused time four times a week in the Bible. Four times a week. And I'm going to suggest that you don't count Sunday morning for that. If you have a Bible study group, that could count if it's focused on the Bible. If it's focused on some Bible study book rather than on the Bible, that's a little different. I want you to focus strictly on the Bible and see what God says to you out of that. And why not? Why couldn't we benefit from that? Well, there's one other passage I want to get to and touch on before we leave today. And that's from Mark chapter 1. And again, we're talking about in this season of church life about how does God reveal himself to us? And in Mark chapter one, it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry and starts out with John the Baptist that goes to the baptism of Jesus and then his temptation. And then Jesus announces himself and he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel, or sometimes we say the good news. So Jesus is challenging us to believe that he has come as a new king the kingdom of god is here he begins to call people to follow him and he begins to teach and it tells the story of how he went to capernaum you can go to capernaum i visited capernaum a few years ago when i visited israel you know when he speaks with authority you can trust that because he's god he's the great one isaiah described and i want you to have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness Will you trust Him? Will you find your identity in Him? Will you be His and allow His grace to be yours? I'm Pastor Rick.